This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and I am joined again by Rachel Gordon. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Dakota? I'm great. And today's an exciting day because we're going to be talking about uh, the best films of 2016. Now, you know, you might be thinking, hey, this is now April. This is, uh, <laughs> this is now April. Why, why almost, are you talking? Almost, is it? Yeah, it's almost April. We're almost there. Yeah, well, by the time this comes out, it's probably going to be the last few days of March or, you know, April 1st, 2nd, depending on whenever I got around to editing it. Um, (laughs) So past Dakota, you know, you should work faster, basically. Um, And you might be thinking, hey, why are you talking about 2016 movies? This is now April of 2017. Well, the main reason why is... uh, it's really hard to watch all the big movies that you can in an actual year, especially since so many of them so don't hard. come out until December. And then you're just stuck with like 30 movies. You're like, ah, I need to see all these things. <laughs> and you're just like rushing and having a headache yeah. and having no life. Yeah, it's like that two months right before the year changes when it's like, boom, watch all of this yeah. next year. Like, okay. And like, I don't know about you, but uh, uh, for me... I usually kind of have a big list of movies I want to see. And then when the Oscar nominations come out, I sort of prioritize the ones that have nominations first. So that way I can at least be like, all right, culturally Mm. speaking, these ones I should probably just get out of the way now and watch them. So that way, if I need to talk about them, I can. It's a lot easier as opposed to, you know, finding super obscure indie films that no one's ever going to reference again. See, for me, and I think that's it's going to be interesting to watch where our lists do and don't overlap. Because, I mean, part... Like, there's some movies where I'm like, yeah, I should see this because Oscar season. But especially in this past year, because it was just a really busy year for me, I ended up having more of a proclivity just to be like, this movie looks cool. I'm going to watch this movie. And not so much was- watching, like, the all of the um, critical darlings. So there are actually a lot of great movies from 2016 that even this late in the game, Oscar nominees and winners, I still haven't seen. So that's why it'll be. I think my list is a bit of a, a bit of an all over the place. In a good way, I think. No, I agree. And some of mine probably might look like it is a little too conventional or whatever, but uh, oh. some of them I don't think so. I hope. Yeah. Um, so the format is going to be pretty simple. We're going to talk about our 10 favorite movies of the year, and we've got some uh, fun uh, guests that are going to be popping in and, and talking about some of their movies. <laughs> and so really, let's gonna start off by hearing from Gilles LeBlanc and what his favorite movie of 2016 was. Hello, movie buffs. Gilles LeBlanc here, live in Limbo's resident rock enthusiast. While I saw several good music docs in 2016, like Gimme Danger and Oasis Supersonic, I've got to say my favorite flick of the year was actually Rogue One. It had a light speed moving plot that introduced cool new characters to the Star Wars universe. Not to mention unbelievable battle scenes unlike anything we've seen before from George Lucas. Most importantly, my 11-year-old son loved it, as did the 11-year-old kid in me. So much so that I'm willing to forgive any continuity inconsistencies while we collectively wait for the first Last Jedi trailer. 
All right, so now let's get right into the list. Rachel, what is your number 10 movie of 2016? So my number 10 movie, which I just saw the other day, so just coming in under the line for me and from 2016, is um, Mike Berbiglia's Don't Think Twice. And so it's just about about comedians who are an improv troupe, similar to you know some of the ones that feed into Saturday Night Live. There's the own there's their own version of it. it's called Weekend Live, and it's basically about one of the members of the improv group getting a position on Weekend Live. And I mean, I want to see it because I have I love com- comedy, I love stand up. It's interesting to see how those people come up in the world, but it's also just a really good piece on kind of ambition and talent. And for basically just artists in general, I think it's a really cool piece examining how different people move up in the world. You know, is it is it like is it talent that, you know, gets you famous and rich and on this path? Or is it just ambition? Is it just being the guy who's willing to kind of, you know, maybe fuck over some other people to get there? It's just it's it's not as light a movie as you might think a movie about comedy and improv would be has some amazing people. I mean, I will see anything that Keegan Michael Key is in because Key and Peel was a huge part of my life ever since they were in Mad TV. So like, I just follow them religiously. I mean, of course we've seen um, Jordan Peel, of course everyone's seen Get Out, right? So everyone's, you know, over there watching him, but Keegan Michael, Keegan Michael Key is a great actor. Jillian Jacobs was great in it. It's just, I don't know. It's just a really good ensemble piece. Um, and I thought it was a, a cool meditation, yeah, on fame and how we get there. So I added that as my number two. Yeah, it was one as, as someone who had gone to acting school, a lot of the ideas of watching your peers get successful while you're not really struck me hard. It was definitely one yeah. that was kind of an emotional movie for me at times. And I felt like it lingered on it, right? I think that a lot of movies about kind of making up in the world don't linger on kind of like the uncomfortable elements, such as people who are around these people who are getting famous and, you know, self-examining like, well, why aren't, why aren't I that person? And it is an uncomfortable thing to look at and it's awkward. And I think they did a really, really good job of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like for me, two, my two closest friends from high school, one of them is a reoccurring actor on the show Suits and the other one is oh, wow. about to go into his second season as a Stratford actor. Okay. Hey, but you are here doing ContraZoom <laughs> with me. And I isn't am. isn't that what really matters? It's way better. Way Suits better. Isn't even that good anyways. Who even goes to Stratford anymore? World-class theater, my ass. Anyway, I'm kidding. <laughs> Stratford is great. Stratford is great. <laughs> Uh, moving on, my number 10 uh, yeah, is, is uh, John Carney's Sing Street. This is a movie that I saw mm-hmm. really early in the year. I was lucky enough to get invited to not even – it wasn't even a press screening. It was just like a private screening where I didn't even have to review it or anything like that. They were just like, hey, come on out. And they had free soundtracks to give out and guitar picks Fancy. and things like that. It was um, – at the oh, what's the is that the Four Seasons? Not the Four Seasons. What's that hotel that's like right downtown at University and John? Not listen. John. I'm not. I don't listen. Know. I don't get invited to many private screenings. I'm not as fancy <laughs> as you, so I don't know what hotel this was at. It was a fancy one. That's all I'll say. And it was like this private oh, little right. theater that had like 50 seats, and there was maybe like 10 people there, and it was open bar, and the bartender kept coming in during the show asking if we wanted refills of our what wine glass. It was pretty awesome, and I took my fiance. That's so cool. 
And it was pretty fun. Like, I'm not saying, like, this because this is the reason why my movie's odd here. It was just, like, a nice <laughs> no, like, added touch. Could, yeah. Like, that alone would kind of be reason enough. But. <laughs> but, like, this movie, the music was absolutely fantastic. The child actors were all great. I thought the screenplay was both hilarious in the sort of working class Irish united kingdom way they have of doing things but also really heartfelt and quite a few of the moments were were really sad and emotional to watch but really i think the thing that really brings this movie together is the music one thing i super appreciate is there's this young impressionable boy impressionable boy and i remember where you're at that age where you're kind of actually discovering that there's good music out there when you're like 14 15 and you're just like oh my god there actually is stuff out there that isn't on top 40 radio and watching this boy sort of you know be influenced by his older brother and then the next day, he suddenly writes a song that's very clearly influenced by <laughs> these bands that he was watching, whether it's Duran Duran or, or The Cure or the other big 80s sort of pop rock acts of that era. And they just do a great job of ca- capturing all that. Now, I know this is not going to be the last time we talk about Sing Street, so I'm not going to ask you what your thoughts are. So I'm just going to jump straight into my number nine, if that's cool with you. Okay, going into my number nine is the Iranian film The Salesman, directed by Asghar Farhadi. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of Farhadi's work, who won a Best Foreign Language film a few years ago for a separation. It was really fantastic. Um, and then he went ahead and uh, decided to change things up a little bit and... Uh, and made a French film called The Past, which was both in Farsi and in French. But then he returned back to Iran to make uh, The Salesman. And what a, a fascinating work this is. I, I think because of all the Western acclaim he got with a separation and making a film in the West, going back to uh, his home, making this movie, I think he purposely made a film that would be difficult for Western audiences to grasp because a lot of this film has to do with, with family and honor and masculinity and things like that, where, where as a viewer, uh, you know, especially in Canada where women's rights are so much different and the idea of religion being so dominant over everything is very different than, than over here. You can't help but like want to yell at the screen and be like, come on, just go to the police and admit that <laughs> your wife was assaulted. But you know, in, in Iran, it doesn't work that way because if the husband goes to the police and say that his wife was assaulted, then the, the police and the public wouldn't do anything and they would shame her and she would not be able to continue working and, and, and things would be a whole lot more complicated and confusing. So I really believe that Farhadi made this film directly to challenge Western uh, ideals and be like, hey, look, you want to say you're a fan of my work, then you're going to have to kind of deal with what life in Iran currently is like. And it's a really fascinating way because he does it by casting two people who are who are playing actors doing the American play Death of a Salesman. And a lot of the issues with Death of a Salesman sort of overlap into it and they end up having some disagreements about how the play should be put on and all these sort of things where it's, it's just absolutely fascinating and very very beautiful and subtle and really makes you leave thinking about putting putting your feet in someone else's shoes which i really appreciate and definitely made me look at iran in a very different light and i'm a big fan of farhadi and i can't wait to see what he does next so i 
seen the film yet, but even just the premise alone, I could get a lot of the idea of him not wanting to kind of baby Western audiences with this, like, kind of be like, no, that's like, tell a story, or this is how it is, right? And yeah, it's like you're saying, like, you want to yell at the screen and be like, do this, do that, but that's, you know, the system doesn't work that way there. Um, so it's kind of a painful education when you're faced with, you know, a movie and a plot like this. And as a viewer, you have to watch it and accept that this, that, you know, that you can't just make this go away, that it isn't perhaps how it is here. So, I mean, you know, Separation was amazing. So I'll definitely add this one to my list. Yeah, I definitely recommend it for sure. Now, uh, what is your number nine film? So my number nine film is a film called Little Men. Um, Now, this is a film that comes to us from France and it is quite a fantastic film it is um oh wait not france no i believe it might be greece um where the part of the production was um but yes um it's it's not a foreign film but it involves um a lot of issues of you know international internationality and immigration and um kind of cultural cultures butting heads maybe so basically, these two boys become best friends. Um, the one boy, his his father's father, owned this building, just an apartment building. You know, he has tenants, and he passes away. So the father brings his family, his wife, and his son to live there and take care of it. And one of the tenants who lives in the ground floor, her and her son work at this um, a dress shop. She does dresses. She does tailoring. Um, and so the two young sons become very close. And then when things become tense between their parents, it's just, it's really another piece of art among the many, many, many over the past few years that shows how great child actors can be. Because it really is placed so heavily on these um, child actors, um, particularly the lead, whose name is Teo Taplitz. And they have these very nuanced emotional performances as they kind of watch things that they don't, they can't quite grasp happening yet with their parents. And I like it for similar reasons as I like Don't Think Twice, I think, because it's very much uh, showing you uncomfortable realities and they're almost made more uncomfortable and placed in the view of people who don't quite understand, you know, these boys who are trying to figure it out. And it almost bears it raw how, I don't know, the awful truths of some of the things we go through in adulthood and the decisions that we make. And, yeah, just fantastic acting, fantastic writing. Uh, and I think a good a good meditation on privilege right now. In subtle ways, instead of kind of like the overwrought, you know, banker takes down the little guy, something as simple as you know, a man taking over his father's, a building his father owns and deciding whether or not to keep a tenant who can't pay as much. Just something as simple as that and watching that unfold and how that impacts families. Hmm. Yeah, I, I admit I have not seen that one. I haven't even heard of it, but looking it up, it's directed by Iris Sachs, whose last movie was Love is Strange, who I hadn't seen, but got quite a bit of acclaim starring um, Alfred Molina and, uh, oh, what, what's his name? Hmm. Um, John Lithgow. Um, so th- that definitely sounds like one that I should probably check out then. 
Yeah, and Melina actually pops up in this film as well. Oh, nice. Cool. Uh, All right, well, moving on. What is your number eight movie? My number eight movie is Sing Street. Hey, I knew it would come up again. Yes, so it came up again. I mean, I love this movie for similar reasons that you do. It just makes me smile. It's a wonderful, just wonderful music. The production and the writing and the music of, of the film it's fantastic, and I agree. I love how it's showing in such kind of not like an obvious way, but like it's funny how they portray his musical development so closely mirrored through how it influences his this this boy's music and his band. And it's yeah, it's a very cool interpretation of the kind of coming of age film through music and. It always excites me to see music play such a large role in a film, more so than just like this is a musical, but actually being kind of used as a plot device. And I think it's something that this film does beautifully. And I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, it's definitely one that at this point, if you haven't checked out, you really should, especially if you're a fan of of John Carney's previous movies, uh, once being his his best one. But also, um, what was the other movie that he did a couple years ago with Keira Knightley? Um, uh, oh, oh, uh, begin, begin again. again. Yeah, begin again, which I wasn't crazy yeah. about, but still had its moments. Um, and I but- think that this is one of those ones that gets recommended. And there's some movies that are recommended that you kind of feel like you have to see it because it's one of those movies that's done so well. But this is just like a really fun movie to watch. Like, mm. it's a good movie, but it's also a fun time. You know, it's not something that you feel like you have to do because it's been critically acclaimed and this and that. Like, no, it's just a great film. It's just a joy to watch. It's a pretty easy recommendation to give if you know someone will appreciate music movies. Yes. Like, if they have any sort of musical knowledge, it's a super easy one because, you know, it's not offensive. You know, it's funny enough. It's got a bit of drama. It's kind of got a little bit of everything. That It really is a, a crowd-pleasing movie. Definitely. Now, my number eight movie is uh, is a second foreign language film, but this is The Handmaiden, directed by Chan Wook Park. And, uh. and even if I try to describe the plot, I think I'd probably just end up confusing myself. But it basically is a four-hander uh, movie with a con man who hires this young girl to pose as a handmaiden for this uh, rich young lady who is under the care of a creepy older man. And there's a lot of scheming and plotting going on. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens all of a sudden. And the movie dramatically shifts about just past halfway, not quite three quarters of the way through. And then the movie basically gets replayed again from the start, showing additional angles, showing uh, subtext of scenes that isn't made clear before, showing additional parts of the scene so whether it means uh an intro or an outro that wasn't there originally that completely changed the tone (laughs) like it's just it's so baffling i basically had to keep the plot open on wikipedia while i was watching (laughs) just to remember what was going on and by the time the when it ended it was like the most intricate puzzle that I have ever watched, and I do not understand not only how the director made this, but the but the four actors, because you watch the same scene twice and you watch it the first time and you want and you think you understand what's happening, and then they replay it with just a subtle difference, and suddenly 
while they're at, it's the exact same scene again, the acting and the intentions look completely different. It just blows my mind how all four hmm. of these actors were, were able to do this so seamlessly, keep up with everything that was going on. Like, I, I just absolutely applaud the four of them, especially the two main ladies. Um, this movie is a little graphic to watch. It's both very violent and very sexual to the point where, uh, it almost seems like Park is sort of rubbing our noses in it. We're like, oh, hey, you like mm. watching uh, violent movies or you like watching sexual movies? Well, I'm going to make you actually watch it and let's see what you think about yourself afterwards. And at times it gets a little uncomfortable, both with the violence and with the sex. But like, it's definitely still a very fascinating movie to watch. And it's so gorgeously shot. It's 1930s Korea, uh, Japanese occupied Korea. So it's got these great blending of the cultures and, and it's so beautiful it's so beautiful if you haven't seen it and you're a okay with graphic intense movies and and b uh can keep up with the plot you definitely should check it out see this is one i haven't seen yet again but i've mean to see for a while but i've been looking for because i heard i've heard something to the effect that it can be hard to follow unless you're paying attention. So I've really been looking for like a day that I can set aside. I can watch the movie. I can like spend a little bit of time thinking about the movie. And yes, because I've heard mo- many of my friends, say this is one of their favorites of the years. I mean, obviously from even just short scenes and trailers, aesthetically, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, that really interests me. The idea of the duality acting portraying something and then going back and having it be the same thing with it for me i'm very excited to see that and i mean obviously um chengu park is just phenomenal so it it really it really helped that i had wikipedia basically what happened was uh about halfway through when when the movie took a crazy turn and then flipped back to the start again i basically had to pause and be like what the hell just happened and had to reread the entire plot of the movie so far <laughs> because i'm just like this shouldn't be happening this is not what they laid out in front of us uh, and then every once in a while like every 15 20 minutes i look at it and I'm like okay all right yeah this, so this person then okay all right I, I understand what's going on and then when the movie <laughs> finished i was like that movie was stupid and then i all night that's all i was thinking about the next day and the next day and the next day and i just kept thinking about the movie and just would not get out of my head it was kind of crazy see and that's why i want a day for it because i got that feel i want to be able to like finish it and just sit there and be alone with my thoughts and be like okay so what just really happened and Mm -hmm. figure out how i feel about it yeah yeah absolutely um okay so uh now we're gonna hear from our second guest we're gonna hear from sierra who uh recently just joined us as a film writer she just published a very excellent review of the new beauty and the beast movie so let's hear about what her favorite movie of last year was Sierra Nutkovich. i'm a staff writer for live in limbo um I had a lot of movies that I loved this year and a lot of uh, things that I probably would love if I'd gotten around to see them. But the favorite film that I saw was absolutely, without a doubt, Moana. I think it has the perfect screenplay. It's just the perfect plot. Um, what I mean by this is that every single thing that happens in this film is completely and totally necessary. Uh, every scene serves a purpose within the plot that you and the characters are so well established that you know every single one of their motivations why they are the way they are why they're doing what they're doing and what they're likely to do in a situation but it also doesn't feel stale 
The resolution was completely unexpected and the music was wonderful and sweeping and beautiful and it's really hard to make me cry, but I cried. And I just, I loved Moana and I think that everyone should see it. And yeah. All right. And now moving on to number seven. Uh, for me, it is Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People, which is easily one of the funniest movies this year, probably in the last few years, just absolutely adorable. Uh, you know, it's the sort of thing where if you like Sam Neill, just go out and watch it. You don't even need to really know what it's about. But in actuality, the humor is kind of a little uh, tricky to kind of fully grasp if you're not sort of familiar with either Taika Waititi's work or you know, if if you're a fan of Flight of the Concords and think it's the funniest thing in the world, this is a movie that you're instantly going to connect with and bond with because it's got that really out there humor. Um, but if you're not, it could kind of be like, well, that was weird and kind of dumb. But if you do, this movie has so much heart. Uh, the young boy, Julian Dennison, just plays so well off of Sam Neill. The two of them together are the perfect odd couple, and it's so great. And I love Taika Waititi's work. His uh, his last movie that he directed, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, which was a vampire mockumentary, was one of my favorites of that year as well. So I'm so happy that he's been you know, so, super successful back-to-back times. And um, we're about to see him again direct the next Thor movie, which is pretty crazy <laughs> that this little <laughs> tiny movie is going to be uh, having a director from uh, doing a big Marvel movie, which is pretty exciting. Um, You know, we're going to have a couple movies overlap and, uh, and I don't really want to talk any more about this because I think you're going to have some more exciting stuff to say about it later. But let's hear about your number seven. So my number seven is one I don't hear many people talk about when it comes to 2016. I almost feel like some people forget that it's from last year. Um, I think it came out, came out a little toward the early side. It came out in March. But that is Ted Cloverfield Lane. Now, this is a movie that I just can't recommend enough to anyone. Basically, as I mean, it's not. It's it's well, what it is is basically the plot synopsis that you're given because there was this was movie shrouded in secrecy. You know, people were like, oh, it has the same names, has Cloverfield in it. It's by um, you know same people who did Cloverfield. Like, is this? Is it the same universe? But all, all they were telling you was like, oh, you know, woman gets in a car accident and she wakes up in this underground shelter. And man who's who owns the shelter um, played oh, amazingly by John Goodman tells her that there's been some sort of chemical attack and she has to stay in there with them. Uh, so it's kind of her figuring out, is this true? Um, there's another there's only the three of them for the entirety of the film. Um, in this one place and so it's her kind of bonding with this guy who's there them trying to figure out how much is true that this guy's telling them and it's an amazing psychological piece um i i love i really love um tight quarter pieces i love when something plays out in the same area one of my very favorites of all time is all angry men so anything like that appeals to me and it's just it's terrifying but in the most subtle ways you know it's not at all in any way a graphic movie but it's well, there is there's a couple person. scenes. I mean, it's not like, but it's not like The Handmaiden. Like, it's not no. like. <laughs> okay, well, you know, it, it's it's terrifying and it involves like violence, but I wouldn't call it graphic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, yeah, I guess and, you're so. It's, you uh, know, it's 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 terrifying. It's <laughs> terrifying, 
but I wouldn't call it graphic, which is why I think this this movie does, which is what I think it does so well, is partially it's in the unseen. It's like mm. the unseen and the unknown that makes everything so terrifying. Um, the performances are amazing. I l- always love John Goodman. It's hard not to. Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, um, she was recently in that fantastic show that was sadly canceled, Brain Dead, which was really great. John Gallagher Jr. They all do so, so well. And the payoff when it comes is very earned. Um, and you kind of feel, you leave feeling satisfied. But it was just, this is just like a wonderful film. And I think another step in kind of reinventing the kind of horror how we think of horror yeah this was probably the scariest movie i watched last year um mm-hmm. and, and john goodman's performance where you you spend the whole time wondering is he just like a crazy psychopath who who kidnaps people or if he actually knows what's going on in the outside mm-hmm. world the whole movie you're debating that and you know when the reveal happens like for the people that have not seen it i don't want to talk about the reveal but like it kind of really makes you look at his character in a very interesting way, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, he's just, he's phenomenal, but very nuanced, definitely. Just great, great performance. Surprisingly nuanced for for someone who spends most of the movie yelling, too, which is kind of Right? <laughs> right? Very true. That's a very good way to say it. Um, now, at the end, we might talk about some of our, you know, honorable mentions or ones that just missed their list. But the 10 Cloverfield Lane literally just missed it. It was my number 12 movie. Uh, so I'm glad uh, you kind of got to talk about it. Yes. Uh, because it's really great. Now, moving on to your number six, Rachel. So my number six is going to be Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, the reason this isn't higher up on the list is because of the criticism it's got from a lot of people, which is that the plot is not as strong as some of like his other pieces, such as Paranorman being the one that's most known. And I would agree with that. Um, but the voice acting is fantastic. You know, you have Charlize Theron, Ralph Fiennes, George Takei, Rooney Mara, Matthew McConaughey, the, and I mean, the animation. I, I'm all about animation, and the animation that Leica produces consistently is amazing. Kubo was no difference. It is absolutely stunning work particularly in this movie which is about this young boy named kubo he has this magic suit of he has to find this magic suit of armor in order to defeat a vengeful spirit and his sort of thing is manipulating paper um without without his hands kind of like with the wind with his mind and watching the you know stop motion style animation of this paper is mind-boggling it's mind-boggling how you can produce these visuals so flawlessly um it's just i don't know it's a long form it's like two hours of art it's watching two hours of art play out on stage and yes perhaps the plot isn't quite as strong as others but i also like how it is unfurled in kind of this classic tale almost more like a like a fable style portrayal um the music is great just the artistic direction in general definitely makes this one that everyone should see and one that should have won the oscar for animated picture <laughs> yeah we, we kind of talked about this in our, our oscar round table where we kind of diverge opinions slightly i i do believe that it's probably their best animated film yet uh but the story really lost me in the third act where i thought there was it was kind of unresolved but i think it was still really beautiful and i'm loving the work that Leica has been doing that there's a nice alternative 
animation studio out there that isn't Disney or Pixar or DreamWorks or one of those big ones uh, and still giving while it is you know still somewhat digital but there's a real human element to it as far as it being stop motion <laughs> photography which is so beautiful all right uh, my number six is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster. Um, now, depending on uh, when you actually saw this movie, this movie may have actually come out two years ago, um, but I only saw it last year when it was released wide in Canada last year, despite it having played around in Toronto at the festivals and stuff like that earlier. Um, at this point, you know, if you're big into film, I don't know how you haven't seen The Lobster yet. It was basically everyone's most anticipated movie for the last five years and it finally came out with uh, Colin Farrell shockingly being able to play uh, someone so unsexy. Like, I did not think it was possible for Colin Farrell <laughs> to be as unattractive as he is in this movie. Yet still, because of his sweetness, I think is just <clears throat> the most cuddly man in the world now, where I never thought yeah. I'd think that about Colin Farrell before. Um, if... If you're one of the five people who have not seen this movie um, and don't know that it's about how in this dystopian future where uh, if you don't have a, a partner, you can check yourself into a hotel and you have 45 days to find a new partner at this hotel. Otherwise, you get turned into the animal of your choosing and in a sense makes everyone act way more animalistic, even though they're humans. And it's just so crazy. At the, the first two-thirds of the movie are is probably one of the funniest things i've ever seen it is so bleak and dark and the meditation on what it means to be in this relationship centric universe that we live in now where you're so defined by who you're married to or who you're dating or who you're sleeping with and all these sorts of things and kind of really amping it up uh but then you know you've got the the last third of the movie which turns into this really dark horror movie and makes it equally uncomfortable to watch um it is really a feat of strength and, and i loved what your ghost lanthimos did and the the ending shot uh i don't think i've been you know on the edge of my seat as sick to my stomach as i have wondering what was going to happen and uh, I don't want to really ruin it, but there is, you know, left up to your imagination to choose how the movie ends, which I kind of like. But at the same time, I don't like because I don't like the feeling <laughs> that it left in me. Um, this is a movie you've seen, right? Yes. So this was a movie I really wanted to love. Mm. I really want to love Lobster. That was just completely up my alley. The concept was great. Something was missing for me. And I, this is a movie that I, that I'm in discussing with people is definitely split. I think people either really love it or they just have this sense of like, I don't know what it is, but I watched it through. I mean, there's all these fantastic subtleties in it. It is a really great examination of relationship centric culture um, and kind of how we perceive people based on their status. Um, there's just great bits thrown in, like without giving anything away, the idea of like, you know, kids being thrown in when our relationship is going wrong in this very funny way. And it's, it's, it's great. It really is great. The writing is great. I think that I would have probably liked the lobster better as a book is mm. what I'm going to say about it. I think 
for me, I don't know why, but something about the, the acting was great. Don't get me wrong. Something about the execution made it seem to me like this would have been better as a literary feat than a film. And I couldn't put my finger quite on what it was, but I definitely agree that certainly the concept and the story itself is just wonderfully original. It definitely does have a very uh, literary slant to it where I can very easily see it being, you know, if they haven't already adapted it into a novel, that that's something that they should do. Um, Because I think it will go over well because uh, it has a very descriptive feel to it. Everything seems like, like the cinematography feels like you're reading it at times, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Um, all right, so now we're going to listen to what Sean Chin thinks about his favorite movie of last year. Hello, my name is Sean Chin, and I am the publisher and chief editor of Live and Limbo. My favorite honorable mention of last year for best films was Suicide Squad, believe it or not. I thought it was really good in theaters when I watched it. I got to see that the special screening uh, care of Virgin Mobile. That was great. Saw some costumes there. And then for all the haters out there, it won an Oscar. Um, but serious note, um, my favorite film of last year was actually Arrival. Amy Adams did a fantastic job. It was one of the first sci-fi films to be nominated for an Oscar, Oscar's best film sec- section. So that was really cool. And... I thought the storyline was really good. The pace was really well done. It wasn't your typical sci-fi adventure, explosion, Hollywood, Michael Bay film. So I think there was a deep underlying philosophical message about it, about communication. And that's why I loved it. So I'm going to excuse Sean for giving an honorable mention to Suicide Squad. Uh, thankfully, he did say uh, that his favorite movie of the year was Arrival, which coincidentally is my number five movie. So Arrival, which was directed by Denis Villeneuve, um, the sci-fi movie that is totally not what you expect a sci-fi movie to ever be, uh, just was so amazing you know we're, we're, we're talking about all these movies and we're throwing around all these different adjectives and figuring out different ways to say amazing or great or fantastic over and over again but <laughs> you, you know the superlatives of arrival cannot be understated much like the story which was very understated as well uh and in the end or in the beginning, or in the, really, however you want to look at that movie, um, it is so well crafted. And every time I see a trailer for a Denis Villeneuve movie, I'm always like, oh, I guess he finally made a bad movie. And then I see the movie and I'm like, holy shit. Once again, he blew my mind. How, who yep. is in charge of making his trailers where every time they just look so terrible? Like, That's a really good like Sicario looked like the dumbest, you know, really Mexican American border chasing action movie, and it wasn't that at all. And you know, Prisoners looked like it was this really weird Hugh Jackman screamy movie, and it wasn't that. And like, I don't know who is making his trailers, but they're doing a great job at not giving anything away and totally misleading the audience about what type of movie to expect. Like, Arrival seemed like it was going to be an action-y sci-fi movie, and it wasn't. It had to do with the power of language and how we interact with the rest of the world and, and the idea of 
doing something even if you know how it'll eventually turn out and, and what sort of effect that can have on your life and your thinking and Amy Adams performance was easily one of the best the of best. the year and I'm so yep. upset that she unfortunately had to split her voting and not get a nomination God. for an Oscar because oh, if she was nominated God. I think she would have won she would have won which like yeah, she was she was way better than Emma Stone. Like sorry, yeah. La La Land fans, La La Land's not. That other great. people, other people nominated for best actress are better than Emma Stone. Like Emma Stone should not have won, but no, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, like it, it, this really should have been Amy Adams' award. Like what what the hell does she have to do to actually win an Oscar? It's a really good question. Because clearly giving One a career-defining performance bigger. as the lead of uh, an amazing yeah. intellectual sci-fi film is not enough. So phenomenal. I mean, I won't get into, I'll get into a little more because I have it coming up on the list. But yeah, she, she was, I mean, when we say robbed, people say it sometimes, you know, it's just the Oscars. You're overstating it. Like, no, she was robbed. Like, she was robbed. <laughs> she was robbed. Uh, what was your number five movie? So my number five movie was Daniel Blake. Um, now, this got some critical buzz um some festival buzz but I, st- I don't think as many people have seen it still as i would as really who should see it i i didn't see it until um late last year and or possibly very early this year and wondered why i hadn't seen it yet it's basically about this man um who has a heart attack and he's a carpenter and so he can't he's told by his doctor like you can't go back to work so he has to you know try to get unemployment, um, and all of that. And through that, he befriends a single mother who has kids. Um, and it's basically a very, it's, you know, it's the UK and it's a very, I'd say at times very difficult to watch film. Not, it's, it's not a movie that preys on awkwardness. It's not a movie that's like, this is hard to watch, but it's a movie that starkly shows you the realities of this system. Systems everywhere, but particularly in the UK, how things play out with, you know, getting unemployment, getting on benefits. And it's heart-wrenching. It's very, very painful seeing this older man go through it, seeing this woman and her very young children go through it. Um, but it's so real. It is, the acting is amazing the lead dave johns who plays um the man daniel blake it's it's as if you are watching this happen in real time and every inch of it is believable and all the dialogue is so real um that it's it's hard to believe that this isn't you know this isn't someone's life that you're watching play out and it is heart-wrenching is it is hard because you know how real this story is but it's certainly worth a rewatch. It's just a it's a wonderful piece of film. Now, interestingly enough, I actually downloaded this movie like two months ago and never got around to watching it. So you can so shame bad. me for not watching it if you want. Shame. No, but but it's I put it off for so long. I think because I didn't I didn't quite know in my mind what to expect. All I knew was that it was, you know, this critical darling and it had been for some reason I was expecting something more feel good. Um and it's not that. Um, it is, I mean, there's moments of it, but it's just, it's like I said, it's just real. It's watching someone's life, this portion of someone's life unfold and the realities of the system. And, um, it's like, I mean, in movies that expose systems like this, it's, it's like the big short, by the way of, but instead of, you know, doing it in this overblown production, which is, you know, I love the big short, it's great, but it's exposing a reality of something like that, except instead of, you know, this kind of overblown, funny, interesting, you know, film on it instead examining the life of one man 
going through the system. And yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely worth a watch. Cool. Okay. Um, well then let's move right on into your number four movie. So my number four movie is 20th Century Woman by Mike Mills, starring um, the similarly robbed Annette Bening, as well as Elle Fanning and Greta Gerwig and Billy Crudup. And it is by um, director-writer Mike Mills, who also did Beginners, who I love. I would consider him an auteur, and I follow his work, and I love his work. I think he's great. Um, and it's the story of this mother, um, and her son, and she kind of gets to this point in her life where she realizes he's kind of like um, early teens, um, perhaps preteens, and she basically realizes that she can't always be there for him as his mother. She's limited, so she enlists um, this uh, Greta Gerwig, so this kind of young adult tenant of hers, as well as um, her son's good friend, um, a girl, to kind of almost help her raise him. She's basically like, I need you guys to help me raise him. I can't always be there for him. You have to be there for him. You have to make sure he turns out all right. And it's about their lives um, in this time period as well. It's set in the early 70s. Um, so it is kind of a look at the time, particularly when it comes to kind of women and figuring out feminism and what that means um, and aging as a woman, um, as well as this, you know, coming up this young boy and him figuring out his role and everything. Um, and it's, it's a really wonderful snapshot and Annette Benning is fabulous as always. Um, I really love Greta Gerwig. Um, Frances Haw is one of my favorite films, but I think this might be my favorite performance of hers, just in how real she was. Elle Fanning as well, who I'm not a huge fan of was great in this. It's just very well cast. I love Mike Mills and his writing and his direction. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a wonderful film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is a movie I really liked as well. Um, I think the cinematography was, was really fantastic. You know, a lot of films do slow-mo scenes. He did the opposite and fast-forwarded through bits. And it kind of also got this really cool VHS psychedelic look to it at times, which is pretty interesting. And I completely agree with you that Annette Benning was also robbed, right? I think Amy Adams and Annette Benning probably gave two of the best performances of the year. And the fact that they were overlooked with it was definitely a shame. Certainly. Um, now, I'm going to talk about my ni my number four movie, where depending on how you fall on things, you might not actually think it's a movie. You might think it's a TV show, because I'm talking about OJ Made in America, the nearly eight-hour ah. documentary that, um, while was released as a movie in theaters, was made by ESPN and shown over five parts. Um, this movie is just stunning, because, you know, as the the real oj trial stuff happened in the early 90s and you know i was born in 89 so i didn't really understand i was way too young to really understand the implications behind it all the really the only oj simpson i know is the early to mid 2000s when he got his life kind of back together at, way after the trial and it started to become trashy OJ Simpson uh, <laughs> and was like, you know, in Vegas and doing really stupid 
you know, appearing on like those stupid, not reality shows, but like the um, celebrity news shows where like, oh, OJ yeah. Simpson was drunk at this bar again and tried to get in fights with this person again and things like that. So that's the only per- OJ I ever really knew. And getting to see literally his entire history from when he was a young boy and what he was like growing up and, and university and his football career and his movie career. And at the same time, while they're doing that, constantly documenting race relations in not only the U.S. as a whole, but more specifically Los Angeles, where a bulk of O.J.'s life really took place, including the Watts riots and, uh, oh, I'm um, the Rodney King beating and those Mm. riots that followed after that as well. And seeing how all of this really is connected and like the shocking statistics, how during the trial, something like over 70% of black people thought OJ was innocent and over 70% of white people thought he was guilty. Just such a clear divide. And, you know, when he was uh, announced as being innocent in the entire black community, absolutely rejoicing and crying in the streets and praising him. And he suddenly making the rounds in all the black community, something where he never really identified with before and white people just absolutely gasping. Like, how could you ignore all this overwhelming evidence that he killed his wife and, and her friend in such a brutal way? And this movie does not shy away from showing, uh, photos of the bodies showing uh the crime scenes um playing the 911 calls really the only thing that i found quite interesting was the fact that they bleeped out swear words uh huh. and uh blurred out the nudity despite the fact that they have no problem showing you an entire front yard covered with blood and going into depth of how these people were killed which you know i guess that's America for you, uh, which I think is really the real thing that we need to be looking at is how come violence is okay, but things like sexuality and swearing is not, which is way more, not way more messed up to me, but like that concept is very messed up to me. Um, yeah. This movie, like I said, eight hours, not an easy sit through, but it is so fascinating. And if you have any sort of interest, it's definitely one that should be checked out. And, and I watched it in about a week. I recommend trying to do it as, you know, close together as possible. Because if you watch it over the course of a month, you're not going to remember all the little details. Mm. But wow, I was just blown away with with how this case was handled and the media circus around it. And just like blows my mind where the sort of thing where you really need over 20 years to really be able to look back and examine it. And the fact that like even the lawyers involved were giving interviews on both sides of the trial, like kudos to the team that made this movie like Ezra Edelman and his team were absolutely fantastic and I think I mean I'm glad they made this movie I think it's been interesting watching the fascination I feel like we reached the threshold from between when this happened to now when now people feel comfortable talking about it again in in more of a real way because I remember growing up and seeing like something that'd be like talked about on like family guy and you know, Chappelle would make jokes about it, but I feel like now it's being more seriously, you know, we have American Crime Story, People versus O.J. Simpson, and so I almost feel like the filmmakers are providing in kind of all this hype and retelling perhaps more of a of a, of an accurate vision and a fully explored um, and fleshed out vision of events and of 
how that relates, as you said, to race relations and this man and who he is and what his life was and what it became. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it was a huge undertaking, obviously, but I think it was something that everyone is very happy was done and definitely a fantastic piece of cinema or TV, depending on how you see it. <laughs> yeah. So you may completely dismiss my uh, idea of it being a movie, uh, which in that case, let's just move along to number three, where my number three movie is Moonlight, which is Barry Jenkins, um, best picture winning movie uh not la la land moonlight uh and if (laughs) if we go back to our oscar prediction roundtable i will once again boast how i was willing to die on that hill by predicting that moonlight will win best picture in oh yeah same here same here (laughs) i didn't even care about the director i was just like no no moonlight's gonna win moonlight's gonna win moonlight's gonna win (laughs) yeah um and at this point, I think everyone really knows the, the story about Moonlight, but the idea of cohesively creating these three chapters of showing uh, the story of, of Chiron and, and getting three very different actors that, frankly, don't even look that much alike, um, getting them to, to give such a cohesive performance and filmed in such a short period of time, like learning that Naomi Harris, who's in the only actor in all three parts filmed her role. And I think in two days is absolutely crazy to think of, uh, the undertaking that she must have gone through and how emotionally and physically exhausted she must have been after filming that movie. Everyone knows about Mahershala Ali winning best supporting actor and, and what a, a career making move this movie was this whole year was fantastic for ali but this role in particular and all three boys that play chiron um and his friend kevin the two of them together this this movie does not work Uh. if the the actors that play kevin do not match the actors that play chiron uh toe-to-toe in each scene and each scene has a terribly heartbreaking moment um, that is is more intense and profound than the last and it's it's just a wholly unique piece of work and i applaud that it was made certainly and i will come to this a little more later a little further down the line mm-hmm. um but as number threes go i chose arrival um so again we've already heard a little bit about arrival um again amy adams this is i think the best performance in my opinion of her career um very upset she didn't win an oscar for it but this movie is just, this was such a blindsiding thing for me. I was not expecting, I mean, I think it's hard to expect this movie in any way, shape or form. Um, I think it's kind of a reinvention as many good films do of, of genre conventions um, of, you know, sci-fi and the examination on language and communication, this film offers, but not in like an over intellectual way, or a preachy way, or anything like that, that would make you watch it and be like, oh, they're trying to teach me some deep meaning, I'm going to turn this off. But somehow, in a very profound way, without needing to go into intellectualism, it discusses these really interesting themes of communication and decision-making and language across barriers, um, as well as, you know, themes of time. But I think the communication is what really rests at its core. Um, And, yeah, just how we interact... And it's, I mean, everything, the visuals are phenomenal. I think 
the decisions on, I won't get too far into it. But people know it's a, people know it's a movie about aliens. That's, we know <laughs> this, we know this. Um, even just the ways when you do, you know, quote unquote, see the aliens, it's the way that that's done to still kind of maintain this air of uncertainty and um, mystery. I just, I think this is, this is, this is one of those movies that I really just want everyone to see because it does something that I really can't describe. And I, I could see this going down as like, a masterpiece. I could see this going down in like Space Odyssey. I'm going to say that now, like that kind of genre reinventing masterpiece storytelling sort of film that just defines defines a new era um, of that kind of film's production. I, I don't think that's ridiculous to say. You know, uh, we talk about how how important the idea of winning Oscars are for the movies themselves because it really brings them back into the the limelight, especially a movie like Moonlight where it probably would not have gotten as wide of an audience as it did if it didn't win Best Picture. Um, Arrival is the type of movie that will not need that, sort of in the same way no. that uh, Moon doesn't need the sort of nominate Oscar nominations that it did not get for it to sort of transcend the sci-fi genre. Mm-hmm. Arrival is like that, but on an even bigger scale you know for people that think interstellar was this was this great intellectual movie you know the real great intellectual movie is arrival that yes while it doesn't really touch on the same themes as interstellar the themes that do overlap it does far superior what interstellar does is it over it it it, even and even sometimes without dialogue not necessarily talking about vocalizing but it over explains things right you know it's trying so hard to be intellectual and i know people who didn't like it for that reason you know because you're watching it and you feel like you're being told something you're not like experiencing something or you know reaching a new understanding it feels more like being told and in rival it's more of an experience you're still you know it's these amazing ideas and exploring and messaging but you're not just it's not like you're sitting down and getting like a lesson it's not like you're like in philosophy 101 mm-hmm. which is i think sometimes how interstellar came across a little bit yeah I, I agree with that um now let's go on to your number two movie which is one that i already talked about but i want to hear what you think of it well if anyone listen to the oscar roundtable they're not going to be surprised that this is my pick for number two. It is Hunt for the Wilder People. I love Tiki Watiti. I love him um, so much. I love Flight of the Concords. It's a fantastic movie. So I was all prepped and ready to love Hunt for the Wilder People. I will say, though, even then, I was a little bit cautious because I didn't, I liked, but didn't love what we do in the shadows. Um, I enjoyed it a lot, but it wasn't like, oh, my mind is blown. This film has so much going for it. The performance is Sam Neill is amazing, but also the the child acting again always comes back to child acting. Um, Julian Dennison is just phenomenal, and the tone that he can bring across in his films, T.T., um, is just this super wonderful, um, genuine levity where he can explore, you know, more emotion issues and while not not levity as in like making fun of but levity as in like with this lightness where things can still be taken seriously you can still explore deeper issues but it doesn't feel like you're going for like a deep dive you know you have a levity there holding you up letting you examine it from this better standpoint it's just wonderful it's a wonderful film the cinematography is phenomenal the plot is just lovely it's fantastic it has one of my all-time favorite songs 
um, Happy Birthday, Ricky Baker, um, or Ricky Baker's <laughs> Birthday Song, which everyone should listen to. Always recommending that. Um, I think it's a film that can be it can be enjoyed. It's like a family film, but it's also completely for adults um, as just a feel good movie, but not like a light, not a light movie as in like it's just kind of like a weak, you know, kind of like a flimsy, cute little movie to watch. Like, no, this is substan- this is a substantial film. This is a great piece of film that just happens to be able to be enjoyed by everyone because that is what Waititi does and that is what the actors have brought across so well and yeah it's just it's probably one of my all-time favorite films not just of last year I think this really ranks as well as Arrival and my number one this is probably one of my all-time favorites last year was a great year for film (laughs) I agree um all right. Now, my number two is uh, is a movie that a lot of people kind of forgot about, uh, but it was the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. I also kind of talked about this one a lot uh, as being one of my favorites at the Oscar roundtable. For some reason, their, their sense of humor I, just really strikes me hard everything that they they do in this movie is just laugh out loud funny i i've watched it with other people like with my fiance there's things where like i would just be laughing my ass off and she just did not understand why i was laughing so hard (laughs) at it um the the way that they parody these old school movies is just so perfect i think specifically with with channing tatum's gene kelly number uh where they sing a song called no dames and it gets very homoerotic very quickly it's just the funniest thing in the world to me for some reason because the idea of taking these old school dance numbers which done the exact same way you wouldn't think twice about but done the way they they shoot it in this it just for some reason is hilarious and uh, every person that pops up that's a regular in the coen brothers film you know i just absolutely adore whether it's ray fines or uh josh brolin um or seeing scarlett johansson back in a coen brothers movie for the first time since the man who wasn't there it just like all of them are so great together and, and just type of movie that i absolutely adore and of course george clooney who is a, a big coen brothers regular as well who i think other than Old Brother Where Art Thou has kind of been in some of the worst of the Coen Brothers movies. And it's nice that they kind of re- he redeemed himself uh, in, in this movie as well. Uh, and of course, Francis McDermott, who's in most of their movies too. Uh, so really, you know, th- I can go on and on about the cast of this movie. <laughs> if you like the Coen Brothers comedic movies, you're probably going to really like this. Um, if not, you're probably going to think it's a little weird and wondering why I'm talking about it because this movie really isn't about the plot it's more about these short little set pieces more than anything and them being able to realistically create the hollywood studio system from the 1940s and 50s see now i think what you said at the end perfectly touches on this now i really like this movie i thought this movie was great but i watched it with someone who is not as into film as us and doesn't perhaps have the knowledge of film that we do because this is set in the 1950s but it is not just a 1950s period piece this is not I would not call this a period piece. This is a film period piece. This plays on so many aspects of film at the time and little details and history. And I feel as though 
the way that the Coen brothers did not, it's a great movie. They didn't screw themselves over and care the movie. The movie is great. But in terms of a widespread appeal is I think that if you don't have a little bit of insider film knowledge or at least knowledge of film at the time, this movie is not going to be that enjoyable because there were a lot of things that I was watching this and I was laughing and the person I was with wasn't laughing. And when I asked them why, it's because they fundamentally didn't really understand what was being of, which was often, you know, convention of the time, you know, like a certain type of actor, like who was that type who they would always cast. And I think that this movie would probably be, have been perhaps more enjoyed by people who were, I don't know, younger at that time, you know, who were younger at that time and really get what's being played off of. Because I think this is a hilarious film. They're obviously amazing. The Coen brothers can really do no wrong in my eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie is amazing and the set design is amazing and the writing is just amazing. I just think they went, in terms of widespread appeal, they went just a titch too specific in the jokes and in the things that they played off of to a point where the reason I think it didn't get as um, as widely popular is because it isolated some of its audience. Mm-hmm. Which was not me, and obviously was not you, because we're on a film podcast right now. But I think for those who perhaps, you know, just want to go to cinema, see something fun, um, and we're sitting there and having these jokes just go zoom right over their head, I think that that's probably where they lost some people. But it's an amazing, beautiful film that's fantastically active. Yeah, uh, that, that is true. And and I think the Coens just don't care if the mass they don't public... Care like their movies or understands what they're doing nope. because their movies are like intellectual on a way that even like most I, I will never understand most of their movies truly yeah um yeah. they're they're working on a different plane of existence they might as well be aliens for all i know <laughs> um they're, they're the aliens from arrival basically Yes, they are the aliens from Arrival, messing with whole new ways of language and communication we can't possibly grasp. Yeah, and it's crazy because like I've heard stories uh, about them being on set where uh, an actor will go up to one of them and ask them some questions about a scene uh, and then go and try to trick the other one by saying something different and they'll still give the exact same answer. Like, they literally share a brain, and I do not know how that's possible. That's so weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would love to, like, watch them direct. That's That, that would be, like, my ultimate dream is so to cool. hang out with them on the set and just pick their brains. Oh, man. Um, Can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, we got one more person we got to hear from as far as their favorite movie of last year. So uh, let's listen to Mehexai, which is uh, Sean's co-host on the Capsule podcast for her favorite movie of 2016. Hi, everyone. My name is Mehek Saeed. I am a writer, interviewer, and the co-host of the Capsule podcast for Live in Limbo. A few of my favorite films from 2016 include La La Land, The Edge of Seventeen, Zootopia, and The Lobster, but my ultimate favorite had to be Moonlight. Moonlight drew me in because of its beautiful, compelling narrative about identity, community, sexuality, and ultimately humanity. It's a feat in filmmaking for the ensemble cast, the direction, editing, and the score, all of which connected me to the setting, characters, and of course, Chiron's story. But more than anything, I felt that Moonlight was the story we needed last year because it reminded audiences that people of color, the LGBTQ community, and of marginalized communities matter, that their richly complex, beautiful human stories are valued and need to be told. Moonlight gives me hope that we are going to see more of these stories on the big screen and that we will celebrate the voices who fight to tell them. 
Moonlight is a movie that changed me and will stick with me forever. So I'm going to go into my number one movie now, which is Hell or High Water. Um, this is uh, it was directed by David McKenzie, who is a, a British filmmaker who's really only just started to get his, his start. He made uh, some waves a couple of years ago with a, his prison movie, Starred Up. Um, but this one really came into the mainstream. And when it first came out, I thought everyone was going to completely forget about it. And then by the time Oscar nominations came out, we actually got a Best Picture and a Best Supporting Actor nomination. I was blown away and so happy for everything that this movie achieved. This movie hit me on so many levels. One, on its most basic, it is a actually thrilling thriller. You know, it's fun to watch. It's exciting. It keeps your heart beating fast. You're on the edge of your seat. You're not going to know. You don't know what happens next. But then the reasoning behind why it's a thriller and the motivations behind the characters, all of the characters, not just the two bank robbers, but also the police officer chasing them is, is so fantastic. It's so well thought out and everything is connected and has a reason and a purpose. Um, I did not think Chris Pine had this acting performance in him. But for me, while Jeff Bridges got the nomination, the real star of this movie for me is Ben Foster. For for about a decade now, he's really shown that anytime he shows up in a movie, he's probably going to be the most interesting thing happening and put on something <laughs> very unique. A lot of the times, not easily digestible or, or even understandable. And a lot of the time, it seems like he's overacting. But I love what he does in this movie. He hits all the right notes and it works perfectly for the script. And, and you kind of brought up uh, the big short earlier. I think this is a fantastic companion piece. This is if, if the big short was, was a Western, this is, it would become hell or high water, um, <laughs> with, with just as witty of a script. And it touched on some really great things. The idea of, you know, 200 years ago in, you know, the, Texas, New Mexico area was all run by, owned by, by, by native people, you know, um, Mexicans or Native Americans or things like that. And then the white people came over and took it all for themselves. And then the banks and corporations and company and money took over all of it and absolutely destroyed these towns in the same way these, uh, white people destroyed the towns of the people when that came before them. So it all really connects really nicely, and, I, and I'm in love with this movie. I've seen this, I think, two or three times now, and every time wow. it just gets better and better for me. Now, I've got to say, I haven't seen this whole film, and hearing you talk about it, I'm definitely going to. I didn't – I like the – I like. I think it's interesting the comparisons that you're bringing and enhancing from what I said before with the big short um, and the issues like that it brings up. I mean, I'm just – I'm like anything Jeff Bridges does, I'm, I'm there. I'm going to check it out <laughs> because, like, Lebowski on, man. Like, I'm there. I'm here for it. Um, but yeah, this is, I feel like this is a movie that I keep, you know, and then of course Oscar season came around. It kept popping up. Oscars came around. It was suddenly getting all these nominations. Um, and I was like, oh, like, okay, I, maybe I should like sit down and take notice of this. And it's been on my list, but I'll make it next on my list because yeah, definitely sounds like, sounds great. I'm, I mean, my expectations are high, so now I can only hope that they're met, that they're three, three time watch level of. Dakota approved excellence. <laughs> wow. Uh, no pressure there, really, huh? Um, <laughs> Not at all. 
Well, I hope you do check it out, and, and I hope you let me know what you think about it because I this, will. Is, this is I one. I, I'm a sucker for a really good thriller heist movie, and this one really mm-hmm. hit all of all of the the notches for me. Um, now we heard from Mahek talking about Moonlight as her favorite movie. Uh, is there any specific reason why you think I chose that to be the last one? I wonder why. Maybe it's because it's mine. I love it. I love it so much. We know this. I'm I'm all about I'm all about the moonlight. Um I mean I've I talked about it in the Oscars one, of course. I've talked about it um as well just now. But man, this movie just hits you in the gut. It just grabs your attention from the beginning. It doesn't let go. I mean, I'm sure, you know, at this point, you have had everyone who you know tell you to watch this movie if you haven't seen it. So I don't want to be one of those people, but I'm going to be one of those people. Watch this movie. It is um, just, there's there's really no words. It is, it's it's art. It's beautiful. Um, the even just like the color work, which isn't something that you really necessarily think about. But I mean, as someone who works in art and animation, I'm always thinking about, you know, elements like color and the color work. And this is amazing. And it's such a impactful thing and how the lighting is part of the story. So just watching it for one is an enjoyable experience. So watching visual, boom, you got that. Um, acting phenomenal. I have to say Marshall Ali completely deserved his win. 110%. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an absolutely amazing movie. But I think that um, the painfully, I'm trying to, oh goodness, there it is. I think that someone who should have gotten the nom as well. And I get it. You know, this movie is split up into three time periods, three actors. You know, how can you raise one above the other? I think Trevant Rhodes was amazing in this film. He is um, the actor who played Black. Um, which is Chiron at his oldest. I think that his performance in this film, the moment where he walks into the um, the restaurant that Kevin is working at, and he sees his friend, and this his face, the emotion in his face, he just becomes a different person. And it's so rare that I see actors or actresses who can so beautifully convey real emotion in such a genuine way is that it's as if he was a completely different person from that moment on. And it gave me chills. It gave me absolute chills, but as well, you know, not just him, all of the actors who play Sharon throughout the years are amazing. Naomi Harris is amazing. Obviously, Marshall Ali also only in it for bitch and I'm on a really great <laughs> in this film. Um, so acting, boom, screenplay. Amazing. Based on story by Trail Alvin McCraney. Um, already a wonderful piece that was, you know, theater piece transformed onto fit onto film. Um, you know, story, boom. I mean, I could go on, but it's it's just it's it's one of those movies that I left feeling excited and like happy that something like that was out there. And this is going to this will probably rest in my like top ten. I'm going to say possibly for like the rest of my life because it's rare for me that I leave a theater just feeling so good in like so many ways, but what I just saw on the level of my enjoyment, but also on the level of like, it's cool that this exists. I always like when you see or witness something and you're just happy that it's out there somewhere. And that's definitely how I feel about Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Even though it didn't make number one for me, I, I definitely could say it's probably the most important movie made this year and, and easily the one worth remembering for sure. 
Definitely. Uh, well, I thought this was a lot of fun. We covered a, a bunch of movies. Um, there's, I think, there's only two on your list I hadn't seen that that definitely means I should be checking them out. Um, hopefully, you know, if you hadn't seen any of these movies, our fellow listeners, that you should check out some of them. Uh, we, you know, even coming in number 10, the movies are worth watching for sure. Yes, yes, all of them. Do you have uh, any honorable mentions or special mentions that you want to talk about of ones that just missed the cut? Um, you know what I will throw out there? So my thing is, again, because I don't necessarily follow like the movies that are big at the time, what I often do is I'll just be watching a lot of old movies during year two. So what I'm going to throw out there is I'm going to throw out my favorite classic film that I saw for the first time last year so it's like my 2016 classic and that's the long good friday i'm just gonna throw that out there if anyone hasn't seen it it's 1979 but it's the best non-2016 movie i saw in 2016 um fantastic crime thriller made bob hoskins career has a young very hot helen mirren <laughs> so that's probably the best non-2016 movie i saw in 2016 <laughs> all right uh i use letterbox to track all of my movies that i watch and so anytime i, I watched a 2016 movie i rated it right away and threw it up into a list so that way right from the get-go i knew that hell or high water was my number one movie all year <laughs> because nothing beat it um so some of mine that just missed the cut, I already mentioned 10 Cloverfield Lane. Loving was my number 11 movie, and I, I felt mm. so bad about not having it in my top 10 because I really wish it was, <laughs> and I almost wanted to cheat and call it a tie for, for 10th with Sing Street, uh, but I didn't. But <sighs> you did it. You pushed through. You got uh, it. I know, I know. Uh, I also really <laughs> like Jackie, uh, the Kelly Reichard movie Certain Women, which was criminally underwatched. Uh, not similar to Moonlight, but in the sense of it's three short films about three different women that take place all in the same state and they don't really overlap with each other. But very interesting look at what it means to be a woman in middle of mid midwest america um that i think is pretty fascinating uh green room very intense very scary um the richard linklater film everybody wants um yeah that was a good time yeah it was a lot of fun um you talked about 20th century women i was also a big fan of that uh yeah like I ended up watching 71 movies last year, and for the most part, they were pretty good. You know, there were quite a few stinkers. God, Triple Nine was awful, and I'm so ashamed that I watched that, even though John <laughs> Delcote is amazing. Uh, I can't believe Sean Like, did. you're ashamed just having watched it. Oh, oh. Like, I can't believe I wasted that time. Such high expectations. I'm disappointed oh, in Sean for giving an honorable mention to Suicide Squad. Why, Sean? Why? Why, Sean? Sean, can you just... I was going to say, can you explain that to us? But, like, don't. It'll just depress us more, so... <laughs> um yeah the you know 2016 was a pretty good year for movies good year for movies uh so thank you so much for listening uh go to liveandlimbo.com where our list will be um you'll see them all and including links to the ones of uh, our four guests that came speaking of our four guests i want to thank jill sierra sean and heck all for sending me uh some clips of what their favorite movie of last year was i really appreciate it guys and it's just great to kind of have a bigger dialogue about film in general any thanks on on your side of things any anything you're looking forward to for 2017 
definitely thanks to all contributors. Thank you for continuously listening and putting up with all of our long-winded chatting about film. Um, there's so much to look forward to this year. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff is going to be coming out coming out for us from ContraZoom. You know, we're going to be looking at some some things to do with remakes, perhaps examining some exciting stuff like how this year. I mean, all years really. There's always something great coming out from women, but this year is a really great year for um, bigger franchises. Maybe taking a chance on women, so we'll be looking to explore that. But all in all, I mean. I say it like we haven't started the year yet. Obviously, we have. It's April. But, I mean, for the rest of the year, there's a lot to be excited about. <laughs> Absolutely. So, once again, thank you so much for listening, uh, and take care.